The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. All of us know the Lord's Prayer. We teach it to our children. We probably learned it as children. And most, if not all of us who have been praying it for a good number of years, will come at some point or another to realize just below its layers of simplicity, there is a kind of holy density to this prayer, a richness. And richness is probably even putting it lightly. There is a depth here that we will never quite fathom, but we're still invited to pray into asked to pray into constantly by Jesus himself. The Reverend Dr. Wesley Hill is a well-known scholar in New Testament studies and assistant professor of biblical studies at Trinity School for Ministry. And he has also been captivated by the Lord's Prayer, especially for several years now by its first line, Our Father, which he argues is the entry point into the entire prayer and even into the very life of God. He's actually written a book all about the Our Father, which we will link to in the show notes. I spent some time with Wes to discuss some of his new work, what's getting him up in the morning these days, but we spent most of our time thinking together about the ways the Lord's Prayer shapes us as Christians, or if it's even possible not to be shaped by the prayer. We talked about what the word Abba does and does not mean and how this simplest and densest of prayers invites us into a relationship with the Father that's, well, kind of appalling. And that's good news, especially for those who humble themselves to be like children with God's help, who hold out their hands asking for bread, and who boldly expect to receive it. Thank you for being here today. I'm thrilled to be here. Um, I hope to come back. I, I love what you guys are doing. We'll see about that. We'll take it up with the committee, whether we'll have you back. Uh, first of all, I would love to know what you are working on right now. And granted that uh, coronavirus has made it more difficult for many of us to be as productive as we've been used to being or as productive as we would like, um, for better and for worse. What are you working on right now? Um, what are some of the projects that, that have you getting up in, in the morning? Well, the thing that's immediately on my desk right now is something I'm actually pretty excited about. Um, John Barclay, who was one of my teachers at Durham University, I, I did my master's and PhD at Durham in the UK. Um, and I took a course in Pauline theology from John and, and have just learned a lot from him over the years. He actually was the preacher uh, remotely for my ordination to the priesthood uh, a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um, he, he was, he had purchased a plane ticket and was going to be here in person. And then of course the virus changed all of that. So he, uh, recorded his, his homily, but he has a new book coming out. I think it's, I think it's coming out. I'm just looking at the page proofs here that I got from Erdman's. I think it comes out in, let's see if they say, uh, yeah, November 10th is when it's supposed to come out. Um, and it's titled Paul and the power of grace. 
And um, uh, some of some listeners may know that that uh, John Barclay published a really big, important book called Paul and the Gift a few years ago. And this this book is sort of a more uh, condensed version of that book. It's 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 not it's not a, an abridgment. He's actually written a fresh book, but um, it takes a lot of the ideas from Paul and the Gift and makes them more accessible to you know hopefully pastors and and uh, students and things like this. But the thing that's that's remarkable about what he's doing is he he says as he looks back on the history of of scholarship on Paul from the last few decades. Um, you know, there's been the so-called new perspective on Paul, where we've we've kind of rediscovered that Paul is not anti-Judaic in the way that that uh, many Christians were reading him. You know, up up leading up to the Holocaust, and and so what happens, you, you know, in scholarship is is people wanted to back right away from that. You know, Paul is not anti-Semitic. We have to not be supersessionist in the way we read Paul's letters, but in that process. Uh, theology, like Paul's theology, what made it distinctive in his own culture? Um, you could argue that it got kind of sidelined. Um, the Pauline sociology became much more important, you know, with Paul seeing Jews and Gentiles coming together. Uh, but theology proper kind of got sidelined a bit. So anyway, he's trying to put theology back on the map of Pauline studies. And um, to my mind, it's, it's, it's really powerful the way he does that. So this is a book all about Paul's theology of grace. And you may think that, uh, you know, we, we've already said everything we could say about that, but it turns out he has some fresh things to say and some really wonderful insights. So, so I'm reading through that and I'm going to be writing a review of it for Christianity Today uh, magazine to hopefully put it on more people's radar, you know, especially non-academic readers of Paul. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, what's getting me out of the bed these days working on that. And of course the regular routine of lectures and, and yeah, meeting with my students and, and things like that. And your dog who needs walking. And my dog. Exactly. My dog's name is Carl Bark because I really am that much of a nerd. So. No, 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 no. Please tell me it's not true. <laughs> it is true. <laughs> Sadly. Oh, oh Wes. Okay. Maybe we'll take that part out. I don't know. Or we need to leave it in. Well, we'll, we'll eagerly await that book. And that might be um, a really great read for the fall um, when people are ready to go to the, the next stage of preparing for the long haul for, for pandemic uh, related things and need to get into some good theology and make a good pot of tea and, uh, exactly, and hunker down exactly. um, My kind uh, of prayerfully. Day. Yes. Yes. Hunkering down prayerfully is an excellent day. Well, Wes, I would like to hear a little about your book. Some of our listeners may know about uh, your most recent book that has already come out. It's called The Lord's Prayer, A Guide to Praying the Our Father. And um, you said elsewhere that this book was at least partly inspired by a book by Rowan Williams that you read called Being Christian. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of yeah. one of his ways of uh, rehashing in brief form the catechism. Um, and we're actually... Right. Uh, going to have next week, we're going to have uh, Bishop Rowan back on the show interviewing author Marilyn Robinson. So that'll be a fun time. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Yes. So don't miss it. Please tune in. I'm going to just read from some of the part that inspired you from uh, being Christian. Sure. Rowan Williams says, for the Christian to pray before all else is to let Jesus' prayer happen in you. Our Father, we begin by expressing the confidence that we stand where Jesus stands and that we can say what Jesus says. It sounds appallingly ambitious, even presumptuous, 
Jesus speaks to God for us, but we speak to God in him. We can say what we want to God, but he is speaking to the Father, gazing into the depths of the Father's love. Now, I'd love to hear, we, we're going to talk today about your work in the Lord's Prayer. I'm not going to say necessarily on the Lord's Prayer, because you, from what I've heard of, of already of what you've had to say about it, you get so deeply in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and especially you get in very deeply and spend a lot of time on this first phrase, our Father. It really struck you and has become really important to you. Why? Well, thanks. Thanks for that question. And uh, even just hearing you read that quote from uh, Bishop Rowan again is is really powerful. Um, I think I think Rowan puts his finger on the heart of the matter there. That that when we say Father, we are thereby joining Jesus in the address that he used for God. Um, I think we should be clear. This is not new. Uh, it goes back to the Old Testament. God is called the Father of Israel. God is called the father of the king of Israel, but it's not nearly as prominent as Jesus makes it. Um, you know, when you when you read the Gospel of John, uh, it's unmistakable that this is the unique name that Jesus used uh, uh, in, a, in a way that was pretty unprecedented in his day. So he's he's claiming a unique intimacy with God. And then when he invites us to say our father, we're being invited to join him in his relationship to uh, the one he knows as father. So uh, you, you see that picked up by Paul when he talks about our adoption. Uh, that's one of Paul's favorite metaphors for what happens to us in, in salvation. We're adopted as uh, sons and daughters of God, and we're given access to God, the same access that Jesus has always enjoyed uh, with, with God. So there's so much packed into that word. And I remember reading somewhere, J.I. Packer said, you can sum up the whole uh, kind of spirituality and theology of being a Christian with that word adoption, uh, that we've been given this new relationship. And and I think that that opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father really takes you into that. I think too, of a more modern way of looking, well, maybe not more modern way of looking at the word Father, but a more modern examination of the word Father. And it's, psychological significance, the significance of um, the parents, mother and father, being sort sort of God figures for the child when, when a child is in uh, really crucial developmental years. But then particularly father, is there any place that you talk about, or do you even want to get into this, uh, get into this conversation? Um, why father and not mother? Does saying father about God um, do something significant? Boy, that's that's a very deep and difficult question. <laughs> um, I can take a stab at it. I, you know, I, I was just I was flipping through uh, Joel Marcus's commentary on Mark uh, earlier today, kind of in preparation for this for this conversation that you and I are having. And I, I went to see what he had to say about Jesus' uh, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where um, Jesus explicitly, you know, cries out, Abba, Father. He uses that Aramaic word, Abba. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that instead of translating it into Greek, the gospel writer just transliterates it. it he, he brings the Aramaic word into the Greek without trying to find a Greek equivalent word. 
Um, and I, I think that's, I think the significance of that is the church wanted to hold on to the memory of the word that Jesus actually used to address God. Um, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, that, that's our, that's our, uh, scholarly consensus. Um, he, he probably knew some Greek and maybe some Latin as well, but, uh, he spoke Aramaic probably. And, uh, and, and this memory that the early church had of him praying, and using this word Abba, this this term of intimacy uh, and familiarity, um, was something that was foundational uh, for the early church's memory. So because of that, I, you know, I struggle with this in the book. I talk about father, uh, calling God father is, is to use analogical language because God is not a human father. He doesn't beget in the same way that human fathers beget. Um, you know, he eternally begets the son. So there's there's analogy going on, but but I I I, I don't want to say it's only analogy, or or I want to I want to sort of qualify that by saying it's not as though that analogy is interchangeable with others, um, because of the fact that Jesus used this word Father, um, Abba. So I think we're we're kind of obligated by Scripture to remember that to hold on to that. I do think we need to supplement it with other metaphors, other imagery. Um, you know, Jesus himself talks about God uh, being like a mother hen who, who you know, is, is, is uh, hovering over, uh, you know, her young. So I, I certainly think it's vital that maternal imagery be brought in. But, but there's that kind of uh, Jesus-centered priority to the father language, I think, that we need to hold on to. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, this is something that's been said many times and for a while now, but we call Jesus or we call God Father because Jesus called God Father. And we begin right. with, right. we begin with Jesus address because we only have access to God through him. Exactly. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's, he's the door. So we, we use the password. That he used. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. This also makes me think of, um, I don't, have you, have you ever been in an evangelical context or are you familiar with, um, the sort of, uh, music or any of the Bible studies or the language of, of God as, daddy in a, in a way that sometimes is very touching. And I think people are embarrassed of it because it's very touching and intimate. Uh, and so there's a reaction against it because people are just, in, we're embarrassed of intimacy, but also it can get a little saccharine. Um, so how do we enter into this, this way that Jesus speaks to God in his agony and in his ecstasy, this deepest word that he freely shares with us, which is a little terrifying. How do we keep this precious word, a father, Abba, from becoming saccharine daddy talk? God's my daddy. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to climb in his lap. And again, these kinds of things can be used incredibly beautifully and incredibly sweetly, but how can it get off track? And then also, how can it challenge me in a positive way? Does the question make sense? I think so. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of there was a kind of, well, it's a classic now. There was a classic article written by James Barr, the British uh, theologian, uh, biblical scholar. And the, the title of his article was Abba Isn't Daddy. <laughs> um, because uh, Joachim Jeremias and other scholars had 
uh, been making the argument that this was a term of uh, like childlike endearment. And uh, Barr just points out, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, children could use it, but there's evidence we have uh, in the textual tradition of this word being used by adults, you know, so it's not a, it's, it, it isn't uh, the equivalent of our English word daddy. Um, it does express uh, deep intimacy and deep familiarity, but it, it avoids the sort of flippant connotations that daddy sometimes has. So I, I mean, as you were framing your question, I, I found myself thinking, is there a way to take the best impulses of that, of that evangelical habit? And, and by the way, I grew up evangelical. I'm, I'm very familiar with, with all of that. I, I would still consider myself an evangelical in a certain sense. Um, Absolutely. But, Rock um, it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I do think there's a problem. And this is one of the things that's led me to really value the liturgical life of the Episcopal Church. There, there's a problem when our intimacy with God can slide into, frankly, irreverence, you know, where, the, where there's, a, um, there's such an easiness in the presence of God that we, you know, we forget that uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And our God who has adopted us as his children is a consuming fire as Hebrew says, and he promises to judge not only the nations, but the church. And so I, I just think we have to try to hold together the, what, what, you know, older theologians might call the whole counsel of God, uh, the entirety of the scriptural witness to the character and the action of God. And that's not to make us cower before God. That's not to make us insecure in terms of our, our hope in our ultimate salvation, but it, it, it should, I think, qualify any, uh, you know, kind of over, overly familiar language that we might want to use to talk to God. Um, I'm not sure if that's so much an answer to your question. That may just be restating a bit and, and maybe agreeing with you. Um, that's fine. And, you know, I love being agreed with. That's great. But I do think you, I do think, yeah, that, that you're um, answering the question there, but it also has me thinking of, uh, I mean, I have one image in my mind of um, the abusing the kind of Abba daddy talk. Um, I just think of a a girl um, asking her dad to use the car keys, just sort of like daddy, right, daddy. Right, right. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you know, I'm thinking, okay, obviously that that's, that's not a good image for how we approach the Lord. But then I thought of the the intimacy, but also the reverence that um, spiritual sons had with their spiritual fathers in uh, desert monasticism. And so the spiritual mm. fathers are known as Abba, mm. Abbas, um, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you lived with them in some cases, or you visited them, you stayed with them, and they shared their lives in very intimate ways, but they could also be strange. They could also be a little frightening. Yeah. Um, depending on their their personality, they, they weren't there to coddle. No, they weren't there to coddle you or no. You feel you know you're doing okay. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, if you can, you know, if you can get wild jackals and demons to respect you, that's pretty. That's pretty that's intense. Right. That's the kind of Abba that we're talking about here. Yeah. We hope you're enjoying this conversation today, and we would love for you to tune in next week for the first part of a special two-part episode 
former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams interviews Pulitzer Prize-winning author Marilyn Robinson about her newest novel in the Gilead series, Jack. It's a rich conversation. If you want to be sure you don't miss it, subscribe to our podcast and look out for more supplementary resources, including a group study guide that will be great for virtual book clubs released in the coming weeks on our social media, in our podcast show notes, and on our website, livingchurch.org. What would you say are some other ways that we are shaped by calling God Father? We're shaped in the way that we um, certainly, we can be shaped in the way that we view the Lord through that, that name, using that name, uh, and how we understand some of his attributes and character. Um, what are some other ways that you would say we can be or should be shaped by calling God Father in this, in this posture of prayer? Um, and maybe what are some ways that you've been shaped by this line of the Lord's Prayer? One of the things that I try really hard to do in the book is to say, let's, when we, when we try to interpret the Lord's Prayer, when we take each of the petitions and try to delve into it and draw out the meaning of it, let's let the Gospels themselves be our first commentary on the Lord's Prayer. So there, there are obviously a lot of sources we could go to to, to derive, uh, you know, inspiration for praying this and, and greater understanding of it. But let's just take the life of Jesus as it's narrated for us in the Gospels as our starting point. Um, and what we find when we do that, I argue in the book, is that Jesus' own life and his own teachings illuminate every single petition that he gives us to pray in this prayer so just to take, you, you know, your question, our father in heaven, how, how does that shape us? Well, let's look elsewhere at what Jesus says about God as father. And, you know, he talks about, um, we don't have to be afraid of a father, you know, which, which human father, he says, if your child comes to you and asks for something good, are you going to give them a serpent? You know, that's not, that's not how fathers typically behave with children. They want to benefit their children. They want to bless their children. And so, you know, let's let's bring that passage to bear on the Lord's Prayer, or let's bring the the parable of the prodigal son, um, which maybe should be called the parable of the liberal father. You know, the the generous father, the forgiving father. And one of the things I talk about in the book is I have had a habit the last few years of praying morning prayer while being in sight of Rembrandt's uh, prodigal son uh, painting. Yes, um, in fact. That painting is included in the book. And, and if you know that great work, uh, which Henry Nowen wrote a beautiful book about, mm -hmm. you know that the father there is a portrait of, of tender, costly love. You know, he's wearing this bright red cloak, which sort of immediately brings to mind the blood of Christ, this, this costly uh, sacrifice. This is what it costs the father to love us in this way. Um, and his hands, you know, Nowen talks so beautifully about his hands in the painting. His hands are, are, are almost uh, feminine in, in their, in their delicacy and their tenderness. And, um, they're, they're resting on the shoulders of this, of this filthy, you know, prodigal whose shoes are disintegrating and his clothes are dirty. And, you know, if, if that's, if that's the kind of image Jesus wants us to have in mind when we pray this prayer, uh, you know, that, that immediately reshapes me to understand myself as a, as a penitent beggar 
who is who is receiving a staggering mercy that I don't deserve. Um, you know, if 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 we take our cues from that parable as we come to the prayer, uh, it, it it speaks of an incredible forgiveness, um, and an unexpected and an undeserved welcome. You know, when I thought that I was going to have to simply serve as a hired hand the rest of my life, the father said, "No, you know, you're you're welcome at the banquet table." So. That's been very that's been very helpful for me, and then you know it, it leads me right into the next petitions. You know, what does it pray for God's name to be great, for God's kingship to come into its own, if He's that kind of Father? Um, you know, I'm not praying for a despot to take control of the world and stamp out his enemies. I'm praying for the God who bled and died on the cross to uh, exercise His gracious kingship more, uh, more visibly in the world. You know, that's, that's what this prayer is all about. So yeah, that's, that's a little bit of the way it's, it's impacted me in the last few years. That's beautiful. And since you've already started a foray into the rest of the Lord's prayer, let's go a little bit deeper. I get the impression from, um, what you're saying and, and from your work that the Lord's prayer brings us, it's not the only prayer that we can pray, um, but it is a model partly because it brings us into Trinitarian prayer. Before people knew that there was a Trinity, Jesus teaches this prayer um, that already brings us into Trinitarian, the Trinitarian life, the life of God. Um, could you talk a little bit about the relationship between the the Trinity, how the Trinity is working? and inviting us into prayer and the Lord's Prayer? How is it a roadmap? I think a lot of Christians feel really intimidated when you start talking about the Trinity, because it starts to feel like a math problem, uh-huh. right? Like, how can one be three and three be one? And it seems like an intellectual puzzle. And I've even heard you know, preachers say, oh, gosh, Trinity Sunday is coming around again. How am I going to ever preach on the Trinity? <laughs> as, if, as if it's like this... this esoteric doctrine that has to be dissected, you know, in a, in a, in a 12 minute homily or something like this. Um, and, and I've even had those thoughts myself, you know, how, how do I, how do I talk about this in a way that's life-giving, uh, you know, in, in a parish context or an evangelistic context. But the thing about the Lord's prayer is, is just what you've, you've said so wonderfully. It's, it's not so much teaching you about the Trinity. It's inviting you into the life of the Trinity. There's a great little paragraph in uh, one of Robert Jensen's books. It's it's near the end of his book, Canon and Creed, and he says uh, whenever Christians ask him, you know, he was a, he was a great theologian, died a few years ago, and and Christians would ask him, you know, can you can you explain the Trinity to us? And he said his answer was always, "Do you pray the Lord's Prayer?" And you know, they say, "Well, of course, yeah." And he said, "Then you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, <laughs> because the Lord's Prayer is all about us, in a sense, piggybacking on Jesus. We 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 are joining Jesus in His relationship of prayer to the Father, and we're doing that at the prompting and in the energy of the Holy Spirit. We are calling out to God with the word that Jesus used, and we are asking God to, you know, make us into grateful." recipients and then agents of his his kingdom in the world and that's that's what the trinity is all about uh so i i love that answer and and, you know rowan williams has said very similar things i think a lot of writers have said similar things going all the way back you know to origin and 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 early teachers of the church is that what we're being ushered into here is the very life of god when we when we join jesus in praying this prayer 
That sounds great. Now, I prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning before I came to work. Um, I usually uh, try to pray the Lord's Prayer twice a day in the morning and in in the evening before I go to bed. It it's not. It doesn't always feel profound. I'm not always taking this cosmic journey into the life of the Trinity that I can tell when I'm praying the prayer. And I understand, you know, some of the basics of how, what you're feeling in prayer versus what's actually happening in prayer, how those work, those don't always match up. In fact, they often, very, very often don't. Um, That's part of faith. But it's also the, the case that there are, there have been so many humans that have lived their lives praying this prayer maybe their whole lives and taking it on their lips and never actually internalizing it, never actually um, receiving um, in their lives the, the, the great, what do, how do I say this? The grace of activation. And I don't mean someone whose prayer feels dry. That's one thing. I mean, someone who could, for example, live um, a notorious life of sin unrepentantly and be um, quite religious and even pious in some ways and, and be um, regularly saying this prayer. And, and then also maybe people who live in, in a state of um, despair, of spiritual despair, who have not quite realized the love of the Father for them and the, and the action of the Trinity in their lives. Um, how in the world does that happen? If this is such a powerful prayer, how do we actually enter into it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think a couple of things come to mind in response to that. And, and one would just be, and you touched on this already in, in the way you framed the question, but I do think probably many of us should learn to be more suspicious of our feelings or our lack of feelings than we sometimes are. And uh, I, I think we should not underestimate the power of even, you know, very rote kind of repetition. Um, there's a story in, in one of Peter Lightheart's books where he, he, he grew up Lutheran, I believe, and is now a, a Presbyterian. But he said he went back home to attend a funeral of someone that he had known growing up. And as soon as he went into the church, you know, he, he bumped into someone that he hadn't seen in many years. And he said it was like spontaneously. He didn't plan to do this, but he looked at the person and said, the Lord be with you. And they responded, and also with you. And for him, that was an illustration of just how kind of subterranean his formation in the liturgy had been. Like it gave him words when he needed them. But for all those years saying it, he may not, he may not have as you say, been on, been transported into this mystical journey, you know, of, of communion with the Holy Trinity or something like this, but, but nonetheless, it, it had formed him and it had shaped his, his imagination. And so I, I wonder if, you know, for some people we, we, we might look at them or we might look at ourselves and say, how could you be praying this prayer for years and, and have so little fruit to show for it? It could be that there is a lot of fruit there. It's just it's just hidden, and it and it may not emerge until you know one of those moments, like Lightheart describes. Um, so, so that's that's one thought that I have. I think another thought is is maybe more of us, and I I speak here to myself first and foremost, need to slow down and grab a book uh, that will maybe take us deeper into what we're actually saying when we say this prayer. Um, I was on the phone with my spiritual director last week and I was just telling him how anxious and, and depressed I've felt through all these months of, of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And, 
And he he gave me an assignment. He said, one of the things I would like you to do is pray the Lord's Prayer uh, very, very slowly and just take each phrase or, or even each word and just sit with it for a bit and, and ponder it, you know, and think about it. And, um, you know, I think, I think probably all of us should do that with some of these fundamental things that can become so, we can become so overly familiar with them that they, that we stop paying attention to them. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the reasons the church, you know, ever since the beginning has recognized in catechesis, we want to take people back and explain the apostles creed, the Lord's prayer and the 10 commandments, you know, we don't ever outgrow these, uh, but we also need to be refreshed in them. We, we need to have, um, we need to have our imaginations fired by them again. Um, so those are, those are just a couple of initial thoughts. I, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts to your own question. If you do, I'd love to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, one of my first thoughts that I had when you were talking about, um, not to underestimate the power of rote repetition. Uh, I think of just the way that that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit across denominations and Christians who may think that in worship practices they're so far apart are actually so close. So I think on you know of, on one end of a you know deeply you know ancient traditional ways of practicing uh, of Christian practices that say you know say these prayers we've had these books for a bajillion years with the prayers that have worked for for you know more than a bajillion years and you know you just say them and you you know say the Jesus prayer and say the Lord's prayer and do the rosary and and has all these different things that you say and and can have this deep even a slow, often very slow and very deep and profound impact on the heart over time with the ministry of the Holy Spirit participating. Then I also think of, um, I grew up as listeners probably will have heard a couple times now in a Pentecostal tradition and uh, have also attended a lot of black churches and so, and have been in youth choirs. And I, so I think of the praise band or the choir where the, the choir director just keeps spinning their finger in the air, like, sing the chorus one more time. And so you're singing the chorus one more time. And, and it's just sometimes a phrase as simple as thank you, Lord. I just want to thank you, Lord. And I remember the last time I experienced, um, being in a black Baptist church and they're singing this song that I knew from, from teenage youth choir years. And I was just overwhelmed by the feeling of gratitude even though at first I was like, Oh no, here's this song with the same words a thousand times. It's this, it's the same thing. It's something about the drip, drip, drip on the heart of the same words that are true. If they're true. And if God is, is giving them, um, life, um, they will change you, right? You know, whatever kind of context you're in. Yeah. And our, our kind of fastening ourselves to them, you know, are, are saying, even if I don't feel it today, I'm going to say this again and again tomorrow and again the next day. I mean, I, I sometimes think of that as just our putting ourselves in the place where the Holy Spirit can do that, that thing of making it alive suddenly in a, in a fresh way. But, but if we, if we abandon the practice, we might never come to those moments. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's a matter of retaining the gift uh, in a twofold sense, retaining the gift that Jesus gave when he taught these words um, re- and retaining our our repetition of them 
and trusting that it's worthwhile if Jesus gave it to us. Um, While at the same time saying, Holy Spirit, this is not gonna, this is not gonna work if you're not here. And, um, you know, somehow trusting that um, the desire to be praying will um, become prayer if it's not already. That's right. In your life. Yep. Yeah. Well, Wes, thank you so much for your time today. This was a um, an all too brief conversation, uh, very enjoyable, and I'm sure we will find a way to get you back here another time. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate talking with you. I love the Living Church, and I would love to come back sometime. So thanks, Amber. Sure thing. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.